0: Good morning, let's turn to Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26, it says, in the sixth month For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, come before you today, um, we come with Uh, Humble hearts acknowledging our need for a Savior. And we thank you um, that your Son was sent to save us. Thank you, Father. And we pray, God, that you would keep us walking in humility, continue to show us our dependence upon you every single breath, Lord, that we would depend upon you. Lord, thank you that your word is true that regardless of what man might say, the world might say, our flesh might say, uh, we can hold true and stick to your word, knowing that it is faithful, that you are faithful, that you walk with us all the time. Lord, we lift up our children practicing for um, the Christmas play and ask your hand upon them now and for the different teachers helping out with that that it would be a blessing to the families and friends next week, Lord, that your gospel would go forth in clarity and in truth, that people would receive your word and respond in faith, Lord, that salvation would come next week to people yes. in, in, this, in our yes. midst. Yes. We thank you that you are our God mighty to save, that there is no one, no one at all, beyond your reach. So let us continue to trust you. Let us continue to pray. Um, for those that are lost, God, let us continue to intercede for them. We thank you that you are a good and gracious God. In Jesus' name, amen. What we have here in Luke, we actually have actually a couple of different miracles going on. We're going to focus on two of them today in Luke chapter 1. One of the miracles is that we have a barren woman who ends up getting pregnant. So Elizabeth is pretty old. It doesn't say how old she is. Um, but her and Zachariah had had given up all hope of of having a baby. Back then, if if you were childless, um, unfortunately, you were looked down upon. So we have have a miracle there, um, but then we even have a greater miracle where a young teenage girl ends up becoming pregnant, apart from any sexual relations. So two miracles. We're going to look at both a little bit. Um, The second one is what we referred to as the virgin birth, and that's the biblical teaching that Jesus was conceived in the womb of his mother Mary by a miraculous work of the Holy Spirit and without a human father. Now, this has tripped people up. But here's the thing. Both Gospels, Matthew and Luke, which go into great detail regarding the birth of Jesus and some of the events that lead up to it, um, both those Gospels record this virgin birth. They make special note of it. Matthew points out especially that it's a fulfillment of prophecy. He quotes Isaiah 7, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And that's what the angel instructs Joseph and Mary to do. Here's kind of, I mean, this is today is not a defense of the virgin birth, that one could be put forward pretty clearly. Um, uh, Maybe it's a defense, but it's a very small defense. Here's kind of how I've looked at it in my Christian life, and you can call it simplistic thinking, that's fine, I'm a simple man. Um, If God can part the Red Sea, if he can multiply the bread and fish, if he can create the entire universe, if he can raise his son from the dead, don't you think the virgin birth is something he can take care of? I mean, right? I mean, all those other things. It's kind of an argument from the greater to the lesser. If he can do these great things, I mean, if he can create it all, he's kind of in charge of it all, and he kind of decides how things work, right? And if he wants to change those things, he can do that. I mean, he formed us out of dirt, right? I was reading in Genesis today. So surely he can take an egg and make a baby happen. But here's the thing, because that has challenged some believers I'd call it like a doctrinal crack, you know, whenever you're struggling with something that's key to the faith, there's a there's a crack in your foundation. I want to encourage you if that's the case on any issue, you know, patch it up. So look into it, study it, research it, pray about it, seek out godly wisdom. But here's the thing, like this Bible it, it can withstand your scrutiny. All right? It can withstand it. So it has withstood the magnifying glass of academia, for thousands of years. And it will withstand yours. So it has withstood the staunchest attacks by atheists for 2,000 years. The emperor Diocletian, right around 300 A.D., he issued an edict to destroy all Christians and their Bibles. And the persecution that followed was one of the worst in the history of the Christian church. He finally found what he thought was the last Bible. And he burned it. And over that place where he burned it, he built a monument on which he wrote these triumphant words Extincto Nomina Christianorum. The name Christian is extinguished. Then he fashioned a metal with the engraving. The Christian religion is destroyed and the worship of the gods restored. Well, his boast was a little premature, wasn't it? <laughs> there wasn't much to boast that at all. As we might say today, that didn't age well. Okay, Because uh, the last time I checked, he, he's been dead for about 1,700 years, all right? And Christianity is still alive and well. Voltaire, the French philosopher, this is what he declared in 1776, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. Well, guess what? Voltaire's dead, and we are not. And if you want some irony, his own house was used as a printing press to store Bibles after his death by the Geneva Bible Society. Two years later, he bragged, it took 12 men to start Christianity. One, referring to himself, one will destroy it. He died later that year. So, people have mocked all sorts of Christian beliefs for thousands of years. But what I want to say for us believers What happens is that people can get a a crack in their doctrine foundation, and what happens sometimes is people don't do anything about it. So if you get a crack in your foundation, which um, our church knows all about cracks in foundations, all right? (laughs) The foundation of our church has had many cracks. But what do you got to do? You got to deal with it. Otherwise, what starts happening, it starts causing you problems, right? You start having issues. So you have to do something about those doctrinal uh, cracks that form. I remember a number of years ago when I was leading the college group. um, There's a young college student who had grown up in our ministry, and I remember sitting at our kitchen table talking to him, and he was struggling with the doctrine of inerrancy, basically the idea that the Bible is the Word of God. And so we were talking um, and talking, and he had all sorts of different questions, and they were good questions. Nothing wrong with questions, right? Nothing wrong with questions. Ask questions. And so we were talking, but I was pointing him to some different resources, but he really wasn't interested in, in really going past our little tiny conversation. But what happens is, is those doctrinal foundational cracks that occur sometimes, that can occur, um, if they're not dealt with, they get bigger and wider. And other cracks start to form. I want to encourage you to um, deal with those cracks. Listen, doubts are okay, but you want to deal with them. You want to deal with them. Any person in here, if if they're honest with you, will say they've had doubts of various kinds at times regarding the Christian faith. That's okay, but you deal with them. Take steps to remove the doubt. Don't let them fester. Left alone, they rarely resolve themselves. But that goes back to, I mean, you, you can scrutinize this word all you want. It's going it's to withstand it. It won't disappoint you because God's the author of it. He's not going to disappoint you, all right? So when you're having doubts, like, pray about it. Go into the word. There's so many resources for us today on every possible attack that could be thrown at Christianity and amazing answers that God has gifted some brilliant men and women with to answer those issues. All sorts of them. So as I encouraged that college student at the time, like I offered to get him some couple of different books on the issue of inerrancy. He wasn't interested. You have to deal with your doubt. You have to deal with those cracks. One of the things that the Lord's gifted us with is mature believers, to help immature believers. And not to, not to freak out on them as a, a mature believer. We don't do that. But to help them. We'd probably call it discipleship, right? And immature believers, I mean, they can be all over the place. And the smallest thing can set them off. You know, like the immature believers, like, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, right? I mean, they need the mature believer to come along and be like, look, look, Chicken Little, like, the sky isn't falling, all right? The sky isn't falling. Let me help you. Let me help you get steady. Get your head on straight. Let me help you out. But the thing is, like the worldview, a biblical worldview, it will never, it will never, it will never be in line with the world's way of thinking. Okay, why? Because the Christian worldview stands in stark contrast to our present age's way of thinking. Listen to some of these examples. The world says, affirm yourself. What does Christianity say? Deny yourself. The world says, you do you. What does Christianity say? Be like Jesus. The world says, my body, my choice. What does Christianity say? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. The world says, cancel your enemies. What does Christianity say? Love your enemies. The world says there are many ways to God. Christianity says Jesus is the only way to God. The world says stay out of my bedroom. Christianity says flee from sexual immorality. The world says live your truth. Christianity says the truth will set you free. Listen, the world will always set itself free. Against gospel truth, and you think about it in, in, in the Matthew passage talking about uh, the birth of Jesus in that narrative, it talks about when Herod heard the news from the magi that they were they were terrified. Herod and all Jerusalem were terrified. Why were they terrified? They were terrified. It might be true that that the king actually might have come. Why do you think Herod takes action and wipes out? an entire village of baby boys because he thought it might be true. He knew if it was true, it had implications. Implications for him, for his throne, but implications for everyone. And indeed, it does. When we think about it, when we look at the word, I mean, from beginning to end, the Bible is about life. First, it starts out talking about physical life, but it also emphasizes the aspect of spiritual life. Even when you just start in Genesis 1, I mean, we find out about plant life, animal life, human life, right? And over and over again, there's this phrase, according to their kind, or sometimes according to its kind. Uh, It occurs eight different times. What's God doing? He is setting up his creation. He's taking great care to distinguish and differentiate between various groups. And where does he spend the most time? On mankind, right? You read chapter 1, and at the end, you get a pretty good lengthy amount. But then what is chapter 2 all about? Mankind. Is there a whole chapter devoted to the plants? No. Is there a whole chapter devoted to the animals? No. Sorry, Peter. God sees at the pinnacle of his creation mankind that theme of god cherishing his creation he does cherish the earth itself he does cherish the stars he does cherish the plants and the animals but guess what he cherishes the most mankind he greatly values it and that is the theme and the flavor that you see from genesis all the way through Revelation. What life is God concerned primarily about? Human life. All of it. Not just the two in the garden, but all their progeny. I mean, think about it. He's concerned about Cain, right? Genesis 4, I mean, he goes to Cain to warn him. He's concerned about Cain, about the, the, the horrible decision that he knows he's about to make. But he loves even Cain. He wants Cain to walk in righteousness. God repeatedly shows his concern for people. Old life, young life, all life. So here we have, back in Luke, we have two babies, John and Jesus. And God focuses our attention on these two babies to show us what his plan is. Now I want to talk briefly about Mary's greeting because I want you to see the three reactions that Mary's greeting gets. Look back in Luke. Notice what happens in verse 40. It says, Mary entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. There's three reactions here. The first it says, and when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that baby leaped in her womb, so the, the, the baby leaps then it says, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, so Elizabeth gets filled with the Holy Spirit that's the second thing, and then third, she exclaimed with a loud cry, so she cries out well what she cries out comes I mean, the, the, path, the, the steps there are undeniable, right? The baby's leaping she's filled with the holy spirit and then she cries out what she cries out is coming From the holy spirit. What does she cry out? Blessed are you among women And blessed is the fruit of your womb And why is this granted to me that the mother of my lord should come to me? For behold when the sound of your greeting came to my ears the baby in my womb Leaped for joy and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her From the lord That's her being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's her prophesying. Think about this for a moment. Elizabeth has a reaction, and the baby has a reaction. What are they reacting to? The Savior coming into their midst. What is our reaction to the Savior coming into our midst? What is our reaction to receiving the salvation of God through his son, Jesus? John leaps. Elizabeth cries out in joy. And what do we do? Because we want to have a reaction. We want to have a righteous reaction. And they show us pretty well how to react. Leaping in joy. I want you to notice the Spirit's role in all of this. God is very active in everything that's happening here. This isn't just recorded history. You know, sometimes when you're reading various passages, more Old Testament, we're just getting historical narrative. It's not like our, our narrative. It's not like God's like, oh, yes, and that's a great thing that happened. No, I mean, he's recording historical narrative for us. But here, it is very clear that God is carefully dictating, step by step, what he wants to occur, and he's using the Spirit of God to accomplish it. He is intricately involved in this story, leading and guiding and weaving the story together. Okay, verse 41, Elizabeth is filled. Who is she filled with? The Holy Spirit. Notice when Zechariah, after the birth of John the Baptist, look at verse uh, 67. And his father, talking about John the Baptist, his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. The same thing, I mean, this is all part of the birth narrative, friends, of Jesus. And God is actively involved in what's occurring here. Even when it comes time to present Jesus at the temple, if you look in chapter 2, in verse 25, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Oh, there the Spirit is again. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit. Oh, look at this. There's the Spirit again. He came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And here's what he says. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Like, think about that just for a moment. Simeon's been waiting for the consolation of Israel, as he calls it, for the Messiah to come. And he was given a promise that he he would see him. And here he is, like, man, a promise that God gave him is now being fulfilled. He has seen the promise with his very own eyes. And look at what his, his first words are. It's filled with the Holy Spirit. Now you are letting your servant depart in peace. He's like, Lord, I, I've seen it. I've seen the baby. I know you've got everything taken care of. You've been faithful to your promise. You can take me home. Right? For my eyes, verse 30, have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Friends, I mean, if you have Jesus, then you have everything that you need and you are prepared for God to take you whenever he might decide to do so. You can take great hope in that, that whenever you are called to depart in peace, the Lord has you through Jesus. So, Elizabeth is saying forth prophetic truths. Zechariah is filled, and he goes on like for 10 verses in Luke chapter 1. We'll look at it a little bit later. Simeon is filled here, giving forth prophetic truths. Notice the angel Gabriel back in chapter 1. He says in verse 15, uh, talking about John the Baptist, He will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. The Spirit's all over the place, doing all sorts of stuff here, all over this passage. I mean, do you think God was up to something big here? Do you think this is important? The entrance of his Son into our world? Into his world? Super important. And God has the Spirit all over this, and all of this, because of two babies. Let's just take a look at one baby for a moment. Back in verse 41, it says, the baby leaped in her womb. Who is this baby? It's John the Baptist, right? I don't think his parents called him John the Baptist, by the way, okay. I know that's disappointing for those Baptist churches out there. <laughs> So it's John the Baptist, like, and how pregnant was Elizabeth? It's amazing. I love it when like, the Scripture is just full of detail, right? We find out in verse 36, this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. So six months along, he's about six months old. What, what is John flipping out about? I mean, is he is he flipping out because he gets to see his Aunt Mary? Like, come on. No. I mean, he's leaping for joy because the coming king had just entered the room the king comes in john has a reaction now how pregnant was mary at this time i mean uh, according to what we can tell um it says the holy spirit verse 35 will come upon you the power of the most high will overshadow you therefore the child to be born will be called holy the son of god he then the angel gives information about elizabeth the angel it says at the end of 38 the angel departed from her And then it says in verse 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. So, I mean, it seems like like Mary's thinking. She gets this information from the angel. She believes the angel, unlike Zachariah. She believes it, and she's thinking, Man, Elizabeth is pregnant. Like, that's crazy. And I'm pregnant. That's crazy. I, I need to go talk to her. And look what's happening. Right, John the fetus is leaping for joy because of zygote Jesus. Right? And let me ask you a question. Were John the Baptist and Jesus their same selves at this point as they were after they were born? Yes. Right? Everything they needed, they had from the moment of conception. It even says, like we just read, Luke 1:15, John's filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Let me ask you just a little Bible question. Who does the Holy Spirit fill? People, right? He doesn't fill no animals or plants. He fills people. John, from his mother's womb, filled with the Holy Spirit. And look what Elizabeth says. The mother of my Lord, verse 30, 43. The mother of my Lord should come to me. I mean, how could Elizabeth say this about pregnant Mary? Jesus is likely invisible to the naked eye at this point. He's extremely tiny. At most, he's like the size of a poppy seed. That's pretty small. Why is she excited? Because as small as he is, it's Jesus in there. All right? He's in that womb. He's growing. Now think about John the Baptist for a moment. Like, what was his role? Look back at, at, at verse 17 in chapter 1. Uh, let's start in 16. This is still the angel Gabriel speaking. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people of prepared. So the angel Gabriel tells him this, like you're preparing the way for God. You're preparing the way because he is arriving. The same thing happens in Matthew. Let's look at Matthew just briefly. Hold your place in Luke because we're coming back to it. But Matthew chapter 3, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So he was to announce the coming of the Messiah. Go before him and prepare the way. He is the forerunner. Okay, this was revealed to Isaiah as well. We just read the passage that was quoted. Look at Luke, back in Luke. We're going to see what Zechariah has to say about it. Verse 67 And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. So he's taught, you, child, you, my son, John the Baptist, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. You will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, Whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's John the Baptist. When was he assigned this task? Before he was even born, he gets this task given to him. And guess what, friends? John doesn't waste any time, he's still in the womb. And he's already doing his job as best he can. Leaping for joy. Did John see Jesus? No. John actually couldn't see himself at that time. At least he wouldn't open his eyes in utero for a few more weeks. Did John hear Jesus? No. But John knew he was in the very presence of the Son of God. And that got John jumping for joy. Think of it like this. The first person to recognize Jesus was an unborn child. What a great privilege was bestowed upon John as an unborn child. And tell me that God doesn't view the unborn child with great value. So John the baby Baptist was a person. He was the one leaping in Elizabeth's womb. Six months. He had emotions, he had reactions. And what did he recognize? He recognized, even at the size of a poppy seed, he recognized Jesus. Why is he reacting to something the size of a poppy seed? Because as small as Jesus was, it was truly Jesus. Not the potential to be Jesus, not something that turned out into Jesus, but Jesus himself. And the unborn baby John knew what took scientists years to figure out. Life begins at conception. Why is any of this important? Because God didn't want people to miss the arrival of his son. He wants it announced to the world. He spoke through prophets in the Old Testament pointing to his son's coming. I mean, we could spend really, probably years but we could definitely spend months and easily weeks looking at how he spoke through prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet of all the things about Jesus, even going back to Genesis, speaking to Adam and Eve and giving them hope in the midst of their fallenness. So now he sends John to testify, the last prophet, so to speak, the forerunner, the last one to come before Jesus arrives on the scene. And I want you to notice, in all of this, I want you to notice, who does God work through in this passage that we've read? He's working through a barren woman, Elizabeth. Back then, like I said, unfortunately she would have been looked down upon for her barrenness. In fact, notice... What happens in verse 24, Luke 1? After these days, so Zechariah goes back home after his time ends. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. So this barren woman But then also, who is he working through? An unknown teenage girl. Underappreciated. Unappreciated, potentially. And what's her reaction? It's one of faith. What's Elizabeth's reaction? One of faith. If we keep reading the story, who else is involved in this narrative story? Well, we get shepherds that get involved, right? I mean... God could have sent those angels to whoever he wanted to send them to. True? Right? Who does he send them to? The shepherds. And if you've heard enough Christmas stories, probably at some point you've heard how the shepherds were looked down upon and despised. They couldn't even testify in court because their testimony was considered trash, worthless. There's irony here, right? Like, God takes the trash and the worthless ones, and he delivers to them this most amazing news. To be the witnesses, God entrusts that message to the shepherds. Man, if there's hope for the shepherds, there's hope for us. Yeah. True? Yeah. Then he has these, these magi, we call them wise men from the east. I mean, they look different. They didn't fit in. As soon as they showed up in Jerusalem... He could have seen them a mile away. They look different, different skin. They would have stuck out like a sore thumb. Yet God reveals himself to them to come and worship the king of Israel. What do you think God is trying to communicate as he prepares to send his son to the earth and as his son enters this earth? That Jesus came For the downtrodden. That God always has room for the outcast, for the oddballs, for the ones that don't fit, for the unpopular, for the ugly. His kingdom will be full of what the world says didn't have worth. And Jesus came for you. To save you. As if truth be told, we're, we're all the downtrodden. We're all living in darkness apart from Christ. Yes. And God sent his son for you. To redeem you, to save you. To give you the hope that only and truly Jesus himself can give. I encourage you today to trust in Christ. Trust in this Baby Jesus that grew up from a baby to a child to a man and then laid down his life for us. Because the story doesn't end here. This is just the beginning. It gets much better. You thought this was great, right? I and mean, We've read it so many times. But man, imagine reading this for the first time. Imagine being Theophilus in chapter 1, who it's addressed to. I mean, you know, Luke's got... Uh, kind of a a big task before him he's kind of built big expectations well why because god's built those expectations and guess what he fulfills every single one of them so trust in jesus that is where our hope is found that is where salvation is found look to him it is through him and him alone that we have life let's pray Lord, I pray for every heart in this room right now, anyone listening or watching, that each one of them would know they have an invitation from you today to trust in you, to put their complete trust in you 100%. Give them, Lord, the gift of salvation. Let them truly trust for the first time to know that you are a good God, that you are a gracious God, that you sent your Son to die for them, to take care of their sin, to be made right with you. Let them trust, Lord. Let them turn away from their sins, even as the message of John the Baptist was repent, let them repent and turn towards you. Let them turn away from the darkness and turn towards the light. Lord, give the gift of your spirit to people here. That's what we, we read about your spirit. Spirit, fill, fill all of us now and regenerate the hearts of those that don't know you. Do your work as only you can do. We beseech you before the throne of God the Father to save souls, to grab them from the pit of hell and bring them into your kingdom, a glorious kingdom, an amazing kingdom, a kingdom of light where you are. And we get adopted into your kingdom to be your children. Do this, we ask, Lord, for your glory. Amen.